If you can, turn in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 11. We're going to read the story of the Tower of Babel. And this is sort of the, the end of this little uh, series we've taken in what is called the primeval history. And as I've told you throughout the book of Genesis, uh, Moses was not trying to communicate scientific information or precise historiography. Uh, and so what we're looking at here is a very concise story that Moses is telling the people of Israel who are out on the plains of Moab. They're getting ready to go in and conquer uh, the promised land. And he's telling them why God created. What is our purpose in life? Why are you here? What is the purpose, the meaning of life? And let me tell you, everybody's asking that question. Everyone wants to know, what is the meaning of my life? Do I have any meaning? Do I have any value? And uh, Moses answers that with with artistic majesty, that we are created in the image of God, and by virtue of that and that alone, humanity stands in a place very dear to God's heart. And because of that, we are to go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the goodness of His glory. We're to to take care of our world and the people around us, just like we were talking about a moment ago, to the best of our abilities. As Paul said, we're to spend and be spent for the good of the world around us. When you get to chapter 11, you hit this amazing story of the Tower of Babel. And let's read the passage together. It's printed in your bulletin in case you don't have your scriptures with you. But it's uh, actually uh, chapter 11, the first nine verses. And we'll just end with that because the rest is is, uh, history of what happened to all these people. And we don't need to go into that today. But uh, let's begin with uh, verse 1. Now hear God's word. The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. In 225 uh, BC, uh, a a historian named Philo of Byzantium wrote of the seven wonders. I know all of you have heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They're the Great Pyramid of Giza. This is what was in uh, Philo's document. Uh, Because... None of them exist today except the Great Pyramid of Giza, which is a mess. But nevertheless, it's been restored. We would not know about any of these. The Great Pyramid of Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon that were built either by Nebuchadnezzar or maybe one of the Assyrian 
uh, kings in Nineveh. We're not really sure. Uh, Archaeology is still unsure about that. The statue of Zeus at Olympia, not there anymore. The temple of Artemis from uh, the book of Acts. You probably remember the temple of Diana uh, that was uh, so much controversy over the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Uh, That no longer exists. The mausoleum of Halicarnassus, the lighthouse of Alexandria. Those are the seven wonders of the ancient world. And only the pyramid of Giza is left, the great pyramid. And even that, when for centuries was run down and broken up and and just just a hunk of, of stone until recent years they've tried to restore some of it. You see, human history is strewn with rubble of men and women and cultures and uh, nations and societies and groups building things and building things and we almost frantic about building but only to find in time they all eventually crumble. Now we have got a lot of old buildings in El Paso. You know you can go on a tour, the Trost tour to see all the Trost buildings and it's really amazing the beautiful buildings that we have here. But you know one day they will be gone. Someday. I mean, we'll try to preserve what we can, but you know, in a thousand years, probably not. And so when God looks at the world and He tells us, I'm going to tell you a story about something that you need to know so that you can manage your life as you're going through your life. Just the way He was telling Moses and the children of Israel out on the plains of Moab, here is what you're looking at. Here's what you're facing as you go forward into the land of promise and establish your community there, the community that I have decreed will be my people. Here is what you're going to be looking at. And we don't want to build something that's just going to be run down and turned into rubble. Moses lays a foundation, as we've seen throughout the book of Genesis so far, for an entirely different vision of humanity, what it means to be a human being in this world. And that commission of what it means to be a person, a human being in the world was passed on to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Let them know the good news. The King has come. He's died for your sins. Now, go and proclaim this good news to do good to humanity and glory to God. That is the vision that God had from the beginning in creation to this day. Genesis 1-11, through the primeval history, is kind of like a bookend, one end of the book. Comes to this 11th chapter and something dramatic happens. He confuses their language and scatters the population of humanity all over the world and it's exactly what you see today. There are hundreds and hundreds of languages, cultures, people, colors, everything under the sun. And we have been in tension and strife, sometimes in outright war and bloodshed with one another since this time. And yet, I'm going to try to make the case that it was a gracious act of God in doing what He did. And I'll explain that in a moment. The other end of the bookend, the other end of the book, 1 through 11 of Genesis is a bookend. There's another particular moment in history that puts the other bookend on. And we'll talk about that in a moment. When you see it, it's just amazing. 
So let's look at, first of all, the grand illusion that humanity had when they start building this tower. The great exposure that God brings to them. They had an illusion of what they were going to do, and God exposes it. He, he pulls the curtain back and lets them see what it really is. And then finally, we'll talk about a grand reversal. This is where we're going to go and look at how God actually reverses this so that we are not, we are not living in this world anymore. We can move beyond this world into something that God wants us to actually create. So what is the grand illusion? Look at verses 1 through 4. What we see there is an incredible statement of pride, hubris, self-glorification, arrogance of the highest order. Come, let us build. They're one language. They have complete unity. One language, one place, one purpose. Humanity, think of what what human beings could do if we had one language, one purpose, and one thing that was moving us, driving us together. All people, they had that. And what did they do with it? What did they use with that tremendous unity? What has divided the world since then was not there. It was unity. They had it, and what did they do with it? Willful disobedience and defiance of God Himself. Come, let us build, let us make. Listen, just the language, in fact, in Hebrew, it's very strong. It's willful defiance. It's not, well, you know, should we or shouldn't we? No, it's we're going to build, and we're going to do it in the face of God and everybody. Willful disobedience and defiance. And they, would, they were creating a, what is called a ziggurat. It's a tower made of brick, solid brick, built up very high, and at the top of these ziggurats, they still have some that are, that are existing today, although they've, most of them have fallen down, but they've restored some. These towers that were uh, all over the ancient Near East uh, had at the top of them a shrine, and often the shrine was painted with blue enamel so that it matched the heavens, and this was the place that the gods up there in the celestial heavens would come down and they would come into their shrine and then they would make their way down the stairs and the ziggurats were built next to the temple complex and the temple complex was built in the city and most people didn't live in the city. They lived outside the city, around the city. The city and the city walls were to contain the ziggurat, contain the temple and all the religious elites and all of that. You know what it's like and they've got all these walls built around them and, and that's where you had to come to find the gods. Massive, lofty, Man-made. What they were is they were man-made mountains with their roots in the earth and their tops in the sky, in the heavens. It was an intersection between heaven and earth. This is the arrogance and hubris of mankind. We think that we're going to be able to make contact with God. That some, If we just throw something up there to Him, Maybe a shrine or something, or maybe it's our good works, our religion, or maybe it's our doctrine. Whatever it is, throw it up there and He'll come down because after all, look at this tower. Look how great it is. Look how beautiful. How lofty. It's a man-made mountain because the gods of the ancient Near East all lived on the tops of mountains or they lived down in valleys or they lived under trees because the roots of trees went down into the earth and spread up to the heavens. All of that is part of the, the religious ethos of this ancient world. Moses came out of that world. And he's telling the children of Israel, look what they did. They went and they built. 
And they did it, why? For ourselves. Look at these verses. For our days, for ourselves. For ourselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. A name. We want to be great. We're not interested in glorifying the name of the gods per se. We're going to make a, God, a name for ourselves and we're going to use the gods to do it. We're going to employ them. We're going to build something for them so that they'll work for us. Because after all, we're their slaves. We'll, we'll start to negotiate. We'll have a relationship of give and take with these gods. And that's what the ancient Near East was all about. For ourselves, our glory, and our are good. The word Babel uh, becomes a, a euphemism, if you will, maybe more than a euphemism, for Babylon. And Babylon becomes, along with Egypt and Assyria and some others, becomes a metaphor or an idea of all that is godless, all godless societies. God would identify somebody with the Babylonians or with the Egyptians. You know, just like the Egyptians enslaved you, this group's going to enslave you, so don't trust them and don't go to them. And, and so they, that word Babel or Babylon became associated with godlessness and you find it throughout the Bible all the way to the book of Revelation when Babylon is finally crushed, finally destroyed, in chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation, and you all remember we went through Revelation last uh, some months ago. It's a grandiose, remember the harlot of Babylon? She was, she's riding on the back of the great dragon. And she's grandiose, and she's got the cup of the, of the blood of the martyrs, and she's drinking. The, it's a, it's, oh, it's creepy. It's terrible. It's frightening. Terrifying. This horrible image of this grotesquely evil-looking woman, drunk on the blood of the saints. Grandiose, pretentious, pleasure-seeking, oppressive, exploitative, violent, cruel, self-serving. But notice also that this group of people building the Tower of Babel are not only arrogant and prideful and full of hubris and all of that, not only that, But look at the fear, the insecurity, the dread, the weakness that they confess out of their own mouth unless we be dispersed. We have to do all this or something might happen to us. You see, they they could not keep the front up like we do so much. They expose themselves out of their own mouth unless we be dispersed. We better do this. We have to control the world around us. We have to control these gods. Who knows what they'll do next? They just flooded the earth. We got to stop that kind of, you know, we got to stop that behavior. Bad gods, naughty gods. We're not going to let you do it again. We're going to control you. Religion. Religion is all about control, and you all know that. A culture laced with fear along with arrogance. How much fear? How much class? Remember theology class? How much? Say 100%. 100%. How much? Arrogance and grandiosity and all that. 100%. It's not in the middle. There's no such thing. We're completely prideful and arrogant, and at the same time, we're terrified. That's what's driving our pride and arrogance. And the pride and arrogance can't be sustained, so we get afraid. It's amazing. There's no middle ground. You're not going to make peace with pride, and you're never going to make peace with fear. 
They're going to enslave you and control you. Exactly what God is telling Moses to tell the children of Israel so that we could learn from their example so that when we get to this time in our lives in this 21st century and all kinds of stuff that we don't start building these kind of towers in order to control. And so God must expose them. And this is where, this is one of the most humorous and ironic and sarcastic parts of your Bible. The language is just dripping with sarcasm and humor. Look at the repudiation. It starts in verse 5. The culture that Moses was bringing Israel from was one that was full of exploitation, oppression, slavery, racism, violence, self-serving. You name it, it was there in Egypt. And Moses is bringing them out of this. And he's telling the people, you, you, you can't reach God with your culture. You can't reach Him with your building. You can't reach Him with your good works. There's no way. How would you do it? You make a tower to heaven, but that doesn't mean anything because it will not last. It will not last. And the idea that we can reach God or compete with God or violate His boundaries, you know, that was a violation of boundary going up into His space. You don't do that. You don't go up in there unless you're invited up there. They were going to go anyway. And so here you see the beginning of the irony. Look at verse 5. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Almost every uh, commentator will tell you that the words to come down were a way of Moses to mock the people who had built this lofty tower but God had to come down to see it because it was really so puny and so small. It wasn't Mount Everest. It was a little hill out here on the Mesa, you know, these little bumps. We used to go over them with our motorcycles and jump, you know, big deal. And that's what he's saying. It's a little hill. It's nothing. It's reaching to the heavens. You're not even close. And he mocks them. The Lord has to come down. The the narrator is poking fun at their pride, their arrogance, their fear, their insecurities. The smallness, the insignificance, the puniness. And there's also, look at verse 6, there's also parental concern. They are one people, one language. And he says, this is only the beginning. This, nothing is going to be impossible. That is not a uh, 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 God speaking in fear and saying, oh no, there's no telling what they might do. They might actually reach me. They might actually get behind the curtain like they did in Oz and see me for who I really am. Oh no. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if I let them keep going like this, there will be no end to the judgment, the destruction, the evil that will come from that. And there will be no seed of the woman. Right? I mean, that's the whole point of saving Noah and his family, right? Preserve the seed so that the seed of, of the woman could come and crush the serpent. That's the point. It's the whole story of the Bible right there. Seed of the woman going to crush seed of the devil, the serpent. Crush the serpent's head. Well, there's not going to be any seed of the woman if this tower goes and there's nothing because they won't stop with anything. Idolatry will take over the world. So he comes down to see, and, in, and I know it may be a stretch for you to say, well, you know, is he really showing love to them? Actually, he was. 
Because imagine what we would do to ourselves if God did not restrain us. Let me ask you this on a personal level. Imagine the restraints were taken off and you could have all the wickedness and evil and no consequence, just have it all and live forever and do it forever. What would you do? If you know your own heart, you will, you will be uncomfortable with that idea. You'll say, you know, I know myself. I know what I would do. If there were no consequences, nobody would catch me. I would, eat, I would eat all the chocolate chip cookies. I would drink all the milk. The only question would be what cookies I don't eat, not how many I will. Because that's, John Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. They're always producing something that we want and we want to worship. We want to bring it in to our lives. And so in the final stroke of humor, it's actually very funny, but I know maybe you won't get it. God uses the same words. He, starts to, he uses the exact same phrase that they used in a mocking tone. He says in verse 7, Come let us. They're saying, come let us in verses 3 and 4. Come let us build. Come let us throw this mountain up from the ground. Come let us make ourselves a name. Come let us do this. And God says, okay, come let us. We'll go down there. We'll show them what for. We'll confuse their language. We wouldn't even have to, we wouldn't even have to drop a smart bomb on them. All we have to do is make them unable to talk to each other. And then what? Oh, well, they'll start fighting. Are any of you married? What happens when you can't talk to each other? What do you do? Say fight. Fight. We fight when we can't talk. That doesn't mean that you're not talking because you'll be talking, but you'll be fighting. You know, the comedian Henny Youngman, I love to tell this joke every so often. You know, Henny Youngman said that he found the secret to a happy marriage. Twice a week, my wife and I go out on dates. A little dinner, a little wine, a little music. She goes on Tuesday, I go on Thursday. <laughs> you know, that's wisdom from another age. If you know who Henny Youngman is, you're too old. Uh, but think about it, folks. We, we, we talk to each other, but we're not really talking to each other. We're fighting. Whether it's politicians or ambassadors or nations or people or religions, we're just clashing constantly. Or in your own home with our kids. And I, you know, I've got, oh, I've got grown children and I've got grandchildren now. I don't want my grandchildren in the hands of my children. <laughs> I don't trust them. Come, let us build. Come, let us build. And God says, okay, come. Let us go confuse their language. Once they can't talk to each other, the game over. They're not going to be in friends anymore. He makes a course correction. Listen, he repudiates their building. You're not going to reach me. This is not how you come to me. And he tears it down. It doesn't exist today. And neither do the seven wonders of the world. He halts their headlong plunge into darkness. Out of fatherly care, but also judgment. He's bringing a judgment, a discipline against them. But he's also restraining and restricting them as he did Adam and Eve. He cast them out of the garden so they wouldn't live forever in their fallen, broken state. How miserable would that be? And so there's this 
dispersion. God sends them. And we don't know how long it took. We don't know what, how all that worked out. But however it worked out, today we know the results. Because this is the world we live in today. When you get to know somebody, maybe they're a different religion. Maybe they have a different uh, language than you, a different culture. Maybe they dress completely different than you. But you go and you have dinner in their home and you get to know them and you hear their story. And they're not a psychotic, crazy person that's going to blow up uh, the World Trade Center. They're just a normal human being, but they're not like you. And you get to know them and you have a meal with them. What do you find? And And you start talking. What do you find happens? Doesn't the gap close? It will close. It may not close all the way. I don't know if it's possible. But it will close somewhat. Maybe you won't hate anymore. Maybe you won't despise or hold in contempt anymore. And so God shows them grace. He confuses them. He sends them apart because they were going to do a lot of damage. And then He lampoons them in this last verse. He makes fun of them, the final parody. The Babylonian word for, uh, uh, for, for Babel was Beit Lamed Lamed. It was like B-L-L in Hebrew, but it was in the, uh, uh, the Babylonian tongue. I don't know if it was Ugaritic or what, but it was the same letters, the same consonants, Beit Lamed Lamed. So it's B-L-L. They pronounced it Babili. And Babili meant the gateway to heaven. It's the residence of the gods. It's the center of the world. And you know Babylon was considered the center of the world. Then it moved where? To Rome. And then it moved where? London, right? And then it moved where? New York City, right? And now we know where the center of the universe is. It's El Paso, Texas. And it is. But to think about it, I mean the center of the world, Babylon, the gateway to the gods, the residence of the gods. And in, in, a, in, an, in a parody, the writer of Moses and his, and his group of writers write the same letters, Beit Lamed Lamed, but it in Hebrew means confused. You're not a gateway to nothing, you're just confused. You're confused. You're lost. You're in the dark. You can't even understand your own language. So what is Moses saying to us? He's saying, look, people are going to build. You're going to go into a land. The Canaanites were famous for building towers. And they built ziggurats and they built these other kind of towers that were these huge towers and they would put people up at the top to watch out, to to, to gaze over their magnificent kingdom and and watch over all their wickedness. They love doing wickedness. As I told you a few weeks ago, the Canaanite archaeologists said there's no... The Vikings would have been like Disney workers compared to the Canaanites. They were evil and wicked at a level that we can't even talk about in church. Too violent. R-rated and beyond. And that's the world that God said to the Hebrews, don't go do that. I'll show you how to do it. I'll show you what you need to do rather than building cities and towers and ziggurats. I'll tell you what to do. And it comes in chapter 12. The very next chapter, which we're not going to go into this semester. We'll do it maybe next year. But the very next chapter, he says, no ziggurat, no tower, no temple, no nothing. I'm going to build a family. 
The weakest thing you can imagine. I'm going to pick a hundred-year-old guy that's got no more oomph and, a, and his old lady, and she was old, really old. I'm going to take this couple that can't have children and I'm going to give them a child. A child of promise. A seed. A seed of the woman. His name's going to be Isaac. That's why I'm so blessed. The guys in Presbytery, you know, our, our stated clerk, they're always spelling my name wrong. I-S-A-C, I-S-A-A-C-K. I mean, every kind of spelling, you never like that. So when they do it in the minutes and the, you know, the documents for Presbytery, I always send them an email and say, look at your Bible. <laughs> you religious men. Oh, it's funny. So Isaac becomes the child of promise. He doesn't build a city. He doesn't, you know the story. Abraham never built a city. He never even owned the land he was on. He was a pilgrim wandering in the land. He was, he was an example of who we are. And what our life is all about and why it matters that we keep our eyes on the seed and not on the ziggurat, not on the mountain, not on the majestic, not on the powerful, not on the grandiose. By faith, listen to this, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place he was to receive as an inheritance He went along not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Heirs of the promise with him. For he, Abraham, and presumably Isaac, and presumably Jacob, and presumably the twelve tribes, the twelve descendants of Jacob, and presumably the Hebrew nation out on the plains of Moab, getting ready to go into the land of promise, and including you and me who are heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus Christ, and heirs of the promises that we are among the faithful numbered. Those that have the faith of Abraham are called the seed of Abraham. Those are the people that are to be looking to a city. Listen, folks. Listen, I beg you. A city that has foundations. What does that mean? Not going to fall. Not going to come down. Not in a million years. Whose designer and builder is God. We build to go up. We can't do it. He builds. And He comes down. He comes down to us. The bookend. You remember? The bookend. He confuses their language. They're scattered. And the world plunges into the world, the pattern of the world that we have today. This is it right now. City building. Trying to make names for ourselves. Putting all our eggs in a basket of of health, wealth, prosperity. That's the American gospel. You can have it all right now. We don't need cities of gold. We need gold right now. And that's all you hear on TV, late night Christian TV. That's all you hear in churches today. If you're living your life right, you'll be blessed. Just live right, do right, and God will bless you. And if anything goes awry in your life, because God, you're doing something wrong, well then what's, what would happen to Moses? Didn't he do everything right? What happened to Joshua? What happened to Isaiah? Elijah, 
What happened? What about the Apostle Paul? What about Peter? And what happened to Jesus' perfect life? And he was rejected and suffered and had nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have a cushion. He didn't have a house. Foxes have holes. I don't even have a place to live. He was looking forward to a city. That other end, that other end, we talked about it last week. The other bookend is the day of Pentecost. And Dr. Kidner in his commentary says this, the day of Pentecost opened. Listen, this is the new chapter. It opened a new chapter of the story. Remember the bookends. Confusion of language and now the descent of Holy Spirit and people speaking in other tongues, tongues that others could understand. Now, I'm not talking about a prayer language uh, or anything like that that you read in, about in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the sign that Peter said tongues were. They were a sign. And then he quotes, if you read chapter 2 of Acts, he quotes all of the various scriptures that said, now we're entering into a new chapter, the last days, when Holy Spirit is going to fill His temple and the people that He raises up and begins to build like stones are going to fill the earth. He told parable after parable about the seed and the tree and then the birds of the air are going to live in the tree because it's going to be massive and huge and we're going to grow and we're going to delight in the Lord our God and we're going to build His kingdom. He opened a new chapter of the story in the articulation of one gospel. This is, this is what the sign of tongues meant, whatever else it meant. The sign of tongues meant one gospel, many languages. One gospel, many people. One gospel for all humanity. One gospel for Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, prostitute, saint, tax collector, heart surgeon, everybody. The gospel is for you and for your children. Why? Because Moses knew, folks, listen, Moses knew He knew that we would worship something. And you know that too. He knew that Israel was going to worship something. They'd already done it with a golden calf, for goodness sakes. And we will too. The pressure from this world is great. We will worship something. Something that gives us significance. Something that gives us meaning. Maybe it's our religiosity. Maybe it's, you know, I'm a good person. I really obey the law. I try to obey the Ten Commandments. I do the best I can. I don't hurt anybody, at least not too many people. And uh, I don't hurt them with weapons, but I do speak badly about them. But that's not the same thing, right? So how in the world are we going to conquer that? Where are we going to find that ziggurat? That stairway that comes down. Well, I'll tell you where you find it, and that's on the other side of Pentecost. Jesus sends His Holy Spirit. He comes, Jesus Christ, the King, Almighty God, clothed in flesh. He comes and He establishes His kingdom. Those of you in theology class know He inaugurates His kingdom. And then He says, I'm going away now, but I'm going to send another comforter, one that's exactly like me, And when He comes, He is going to fill you with power so that you can go to all the world and bring the gospel to everybody in their language, in their words, so they can also believe in Me. 
The stone, listen to how he describes himself. The stone, the builder, this is building language. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Truly, truly, this is amazing. I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. He's not going up and down the ladder. He's the ladder. He's the ziggurat. He's the tower. He's the temple of God. The final temple, the full temple, the complete temple. We are stones in that temple. And He is building that temple. And he, they asked Him, they said, Jesus, give us a sign. What's the sign? What did He say? I'll destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they said, how can you do this? Forty years in building. How are you going to do it in three days? And they're all confused because they're thinking of a temple. And John has to clue us in. He puts a little parenthetical statement. He says, he was talking about his body, by the way, audience. And yet we still think we're going to build that temple. And we're going to build up and get God to like us. You know why he likes you? You know how you know? Because he came down. He came down and he got born in a manger. He didn't go get born in the Hilton Hotel. He got born in a manger so that everybody would understand what he's like. He was rejected so we could be accepted. He was made naked so we'd clothe us. He was made sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God, be clothed, our nakedness clothed with his righteousness. They took it from him and gave it to us. He was put up on the cross so that He could build another world, another humanity, another people, people that are not striving to glorify themselves or satisfy themselves, but live for Him who is worthy. And then in the final stroke in the Bible, the final thing you see is what? This is the, the crown jewel, in my opinion, of the entire narrative of Scripture. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. New earth. For the first had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. He's not talking about a city. The city is a metaphor for you and me, a bride. Coming down adorned. Who adorned us? Who clothed us? Who put the jewels on us? Who's taking us to Himself as a bride? It's the King of all creation, the God of heaven and earth. And He's saying to you and me, I'm building, right now I'm building that bride. A loud voice came from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be their God. And then he uses an exclamation. He himself, not just him, he himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more. Why? He went in the grave so we would never have to go. He was punished for our sins so we would never be punished for our sins. He was crushed so that we could stand upright. No mourning, no weeping, no pain. Why? 
because he took it for us so that we could be people in this world that could endure pain and shame and rejection and still love, still care, still want to reach our world that's building towers. Will you do it? Will you trust him? I sure pray you do. Father, help us please to do this. It's a, an unbelievable task that you've led, let, let us in on, but you didn't leave us alone. You sent us another comforter, your blessed Holy Spirit, and we pray, Father, that you will fill us today and every day with your Spirit, that we might communicate in the language of our world to those that are least, last, and lost. Help us, I pray, Father. Save us. And grant us your grace through Jesus, our great King. Amen.